I am hosting a retreat in Tulum, Mexico, in paradise this October called Bloom in Tulum. It's a five-day, all-inclusive, personal and professional growth retreat for ambitious, big-hearted women who are ready to step into their power with grace, support, and confidence. So my two biz besties and I dreamed up this magical retreat over sushi a few months back, and after lots of planning, it's actually happening. We have mapped out a thoughtful itinerary with lots of downtime to make the most of this beautiful paradise beachside location and also set you up for a powerful and memorable experience of growth. There's only 20 spots available and all three of us are promoting it to our full community. So that's like over 50,000 people. So I imagine the spots will fill very quickly. If you are interested in joining us in Bloom and Tulum, go to bloomintulum.com for all the details and to complete your application. Also know that early bird pricing ends on June 30th. So it's a really good time to secure your spot and save some money. I mean, honestly, like how fun would it be to hang out in person at a gorgeous, luxurious, all-inclusive in October? So head to Bloom in Tulum. That's B-L-O-O-M in Tulum. T-U-L-U-M. Bloomintulum.com for all the details and complete your application. It sounds grandiose, but it's absolutely true. What we pay attention to is our life. And that means that we want to take a lot of care with our attention. It really does matter. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 330. Today, we're talking about resolving to master your attention with Dr. Amishi Jha. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. What Dr. Amishi Jha said in that quote is so true. It is so true that what we pay attention to is our life. It really, really does matter. It's like the filter through which we put everything. So I'm so glad you're here, dear listener. Thank you for listening. This is a really powerful episode. I was so excited to talk to Dr. Amishi Jha. She is a neuroscientist and professor of psychology at the University of Miami. Her work has been featured in NATO, the World Economic Forum, and the Pentagon. And she's the author of the new book, Peak Mind. We talk about attention. I'm also reading another book about this right now and how we are, like, we really are in a crisis of attention, the way our world is, the, the way we Everything is set up to kind of pull our attention away in a lot of ways. And it really affects, it matters, it affects our kids, it affects ourselves, it affects really every single thing in our life. So I'm so glad you're here. This is, you're going to want to share, I know you're going to want to share this with everyone because it makes a huge, huge difference in life. So I want you to listen for some important takeaways, how we have these different types of attention, three different types of attention. And then when we are distracted and 
when our mind wanders more often, it actually really increases feelings of negativity. We're going to talk a lot about how mindfulness strengthens the systems of attention and that affects then everything in our life. It really affects our parenting too. So this is so, so important. I can't wait for you to dive in. I don't don't think I have any other announcements. If you don't have a copy of my book, Raising Good Humans, get your copy now. It's being translated now into six languages. It's a bestseller. It's in audiobook form and it's so powerful. Let's dive in. Join me at the table as I talk to Dr. Amishi Jha. As I've told you, I'm so excited to talk to you because I love your book about attention and your study and your research about attention. And I want to just say that um, I'm, I think it's so interesting that you came to mindfulness as a piece of this. And we'll talk about that, but you didn't, you didn't want to you didn't want to come to the conclusion of mindfulness, did you? You were like a feeling a little, a little, you had some wariness about, about the whole mindfulness world, right? Before you dove into this. Yeah. But just to place it, you know, that's over 15 years ago now. So mm-hmm. mindfulness is at a different place in our culture, which is totally. also very, very exciting and could not have predicted that back then. Um, so tell us, uh, tell us about your research and then, and your research on attention kind of let's get an overview and then just kind of where you were when you were like, you know, bringing it to that, that place. Yeah, sure. Sure. So yeah. I mean, just to say that I'm not interested in mindfulness is a strange thing to say. I would say that I'm a, I was a skeptic and part of that was because it had nothing to do with the professional context in which my research took place. Mm -hmm. So I'm a brain scientist and the bulk of the work in my lab studies how attention works in the brain. How is it that uh, different brain systems react to attentional functions? What systems are critical for certain aspects of attention, et cetera. So I was always very interested in my own lab's work regarding um, how attention works. But one of the things that we were seeing was that even though attention is an extremely powerful brain system, And we were seeing that. We were seeing that what we pay attention to really recalibrates the way the entirety of the brain functions. And that's no small matter. Um, You know, to say that if I think that I'm talking to somebody uh, and I'm I'm looking at a a particular face and I have uh, opinions on that, it changes everything else. Versus if I were right now even looking at at, at you, um, Hunter, and, and then actually saying, I'm not even focusing on the face, I'm focusing on the background behind you, which is lovely. You know, very different, just based on not just what hits my retina, but what it is that I focus on within that broad visual scene. So and this is like, to- just want to, like, this is like our, this is so important just to frame this for the listener. Like, and you've spoken about this, like, what we focus on, what we pay our attention to. I mean, it's really interesting The even the term pay attention, we are like, it's a, like a cost, right? Like what we focus on is our life. Like that direction of our attention is what is our, what shapes, what is the content of our life. Exactly. And it is, it sounds grandiose, but it's absolutely true. What we pay attention to is our life. And that means that we want to take a lot of care with our attention. It really does matter. But even though it's this powerful, powerful system that can determine what life equals in some sense, 
it's fragile and vulnerable. And what we were finding in the in the lab is that there were certain things that really did function like kryptonite for attention. It just kind of made everything fall apart. And those were, there were three biggies for that. There was stress, you know, having this experience of overwhelm, threat, meaning physical threat or even psychosocial threat so that it's your reputation or your sense of justice or purpose or, you know, with, with outside of knowing that there might be physical harm, there's other forms of harm that you're wondering or threatening, feeling threatened by, and then poor mood. And so with those two pieces in my mind, like there's this very important brain system, yet it falls apart. I became very curious, almost on a mission to figure out a solution because I knew in my own life and I knew in the lives of many other people that stress, threat, and poor mood are not something that are optional as a human being. We're going to experience them. And for certain professions, this describes the nature of the professional context. It's not just that you have to deal with it as an annoyance. It's the nature of where you have to operate at your best. And frankly, you know, it's not lost on me as we're having this conversation. As a parent, we have to operate at our best with constant stress, threat, and poor mood. That is the nature of parenting in some sense. And so, you know, just to, to kind of fast forward to the question you asked regarding my skepticism, regarding mindfulness and how it entered my life, it actually entered my life, which is one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you, given the name of this podcast. It entered my life because of my role as a mother. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, at this early stage of my career. I just started my lab at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, really scored the dream job. I was so excited we moved into a hundred-year-old fixer-upper in West Philly. My uh, husband was going to take off a year because he was going to stay home um, and take care of our son when he was a little. Like all these things that I was like, "This is amazing! My life is amazing." Yet I was a complete stress case, <laughs> which I can say now didn't feel it then. I actually didn't even realize what was going on until two very, very salient things happened. The first was that I lost feeling in my teeth from grinding. Oh my God. So it was like the body's saying something's up. And even then I was kind of like, I don't know, maybe there's some neural issue I'm having, you know, did not flag it as stress. But the other one was really part of this um, parenting moment. I was, you know, one of the commitments I had, regardless of the busyness and the demands on my life as a new professor and as a, as a new mom, my son was not even three then. Um, every night I was going to read to him. You know, it was just going to be our time and everything was going to be put aside and I was going to have time with him. And so we'd read, as as I'm sure many of your listeners know, we'd read the same book thousands of times over and over again. The little babies love, little boys and girls love that. And um, and so we're reading this book that I know I had read, a gosh, at least a couple hundred times. And we got to one part where he kind of stopped me, put his little hand in front of the, the page to stop me and looked up, you know, sitting in my lap and asked something about what was on the page. And I had no idea what he was talking about. Oh my like, God, I've done that. <laughs> no idea. And and it was troubling. Yeah, it was like, um, hi, I'm supposed to be here doing this because I want to. And you are the most important person right now in this moment and in my life. And I'm not here for you. And so it really woke me up to this notion of, you know, you can have what seems like all the perfect components of a very fulfilling and successful looking life. But if you're not there, if you're not paying attention, it's not your life. It's just like what we were saying a moment ago. And that got me interested at a personal level to 
figure out what I could do about it. You know, I was, uh, the irony was that I studied attention yet. I didn't have my own. So I'm like, yeah. there's gotta be an answer. I'm just going to go, you know, I'm going to go find out. I'm going to dig into the literature. I'll figure out what I need to do. I'll study everything I can and I'll just fix it. It was that simple kind of an approach <laughs> and nothing in the academic literature on attention gave me any solutions at all. There was nothing there. It was just not the nature of what academic attention research was about. It was a, it was a lot of stuff about what I was already pursuing, how attention works, how it, uh, what brain networks are involved, what cognitive processes are involved, but how to phenomenologically own your attention better mm -hmm. and deal with your own generated distractibility, nothing. And so that's where uh, mindfulness entered my life. And, and just to give you a little bit of a backdrop, I, you know, you can see me uh, right now, I'm, I'm an Indian woman, I grew up in an Indian family in the United States in, in Chicago. But Indian culture was a big part of my upbringing. And, and my uh, parents both meditated, it was something in fact, some of my earliest memories as a child are kind of walking into the room, you know, my dad's sitting on the bed, bed made all freshly showered and, and meditating. And I'm like, that's okay, yeah, that's that thing that my parents do, that thing meditation, but it was never <laughs> something I thought would be for me as a you know, hard-nosed Western trained neuroscientist. And it certainly wasn't going to enter my lab's research like now. I mean, maybe I might dabble in it personally, but it wasn't going to enter my research. But what ended up happening through a dear colleague, Richie Davidson, who's an eminent neuroscientist, he came to Penn to give a talk and he mentioned that word. And this was in the early 2000s before it was really known in the larger literature. And Richie's research on meditation had not really entered. He was not even sort of um, out about it, if you will. He was just starting some early studies with monastics. Um, and he told me about him and, and, and I got very interested. And of course, I respect him tremendously. So like almost that afternoon when he, when he mentioned that word in a scientific meeting, which, which left me kind of my jaw dropped dropped open. Like, why did he say that word? It's like as offensive as talking about astrology to astronomers, <laughs> you know, it's just like, no, no, different realm, wrong place to mention it. But I went to the Penn bookstore and picked up a little book called Meditation for Beginners. It was by Jack Cornfield, mm -hmm. and decided, you know what, I'm going to have to suspend whatever judgment I have about this. And I'm going to just have to give it a try. And within a few weeks of doing this, I realized not only is this helping me. Not only am I now here where I wasn't here, mm. but the instruction that Jack was providing was entirely about attention. Mm -hmm. And so the light bulb moment for me was when I said, you know what, I'm going to see, because in the lab, we were already interested in like, there's these kryptonite aspects of, of how attention gets disabled. I was experiencing that myself. I'm like, let's put the lens of science on this. Let's take it to the most rigorous kind of uh, scientific studies we can do and see does it help other people in the same way I find that it helps me? So it was almost like you said, with the skepticism about it, which actually added to the level of rigor, um, mm -hmm. but it entered my lab. And frankly, I'll just uh, kind of fast forward and say, out of all the different things we've tried over all these years, it's the one thing that has remained not only effective, but probably one of, not probably, the most robust beneficial effects for attention out of the many things we've tried.
We are supported by Melon Headwear. These hats are perfect for Father's Day. They are built to be in and around water. They last five times longer than any other hat. They're naturally antimicrobial properties. It doesn't, sweat doesn't break down the hat. No sweat stains, no smell ever. It's built for the water. We tested it tubing on the Brandywine River and it was fabulous. It even floats when it drops in the water. It doesn't lose shape. It is amazing. An incredible, comfortable fit. Use code MINDFUL at checkout for 30% off your order. If you're trying to figure out a Father's Day gift, honestly, trust me, this is exactly what they want. Go to melon.com, that's M-E-L-I-N.com, and use the code MINDFUL at checkout for 30% off. Melon rarely offers discounts, so don't miss this opportunity. It is, I swear, the perfect Father's Day gift. Premium headwear, melon.com. Use the code mindful for 30% off. We are sponsored by Midi Health. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, vaginal dryness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. All of these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around perimenopause and menopause. And the experts at Midi Health understand what you're experiencing and how to help. Midi clinicians are menopause experts dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions. Medicare is covered by insurance, and with Midi Health, you can stop pushing through it all alone. Schedule a virtual visit to discuss your symptoms and health background in depth. You'll come out of the experience feeling heard and with a plan to start feeling better. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Joinmidi.com. That's amazing. I just, that's like music to my ears, like hearing you say that from that (laughs) rigorous scientific standpoint. Um, Yes, I read those books by Jack Cornfield and I I love him as a teacher and all those things. So it, this is, you're, you're discovering this from this personal and scientific viewpoint that there is a way to direct and control our attention, you know, or or harness the power of our attention in a way. I would love for you to describe what the default is for human beings, that what is the problem, you know, with kind of the, our, our normal untrained mind attention. I mean, that was leading you to, and I'm sure we've all done this, like read of story yes. pages of a children's book and realize, oh, I just read those words out loud. <laughs> I wasn't even there. I it's wasn't crazy even there. how we can do that. It's crazy how we can do that. So tell yeah. us about what's the, what's the default. That yeah. Yeah. And in. I think that that moment that, that you just described, like, you're there, but you're not there. You're even able to read words, right? And we this happened Crazy. in the context of me reading to my child, but I'm sure you've experienced this. I've experienced this. Everybody's experienced this, getting to the bottom of a page when you're reading a book because you want to be, and you yeah. have no idea what you just read, <laughs> right? Like glazing over, your eyes are probably moving and nothing is registering. So that gives us a snapshot into what the mind can very readily do and does by default. It's something called mind wandering or having off-task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity. And in some sense, this is an evolutionary inheritance, just like attention is an evolutionary inheritance. It's a feature, not a flaw of our mind that our minds can wander. But in this particular moment and in many moments where we want to be present, our mind can get hijacked away. So what that actually means is that 
um, you know, and I, I always like to use this metaphor because I find it helpful. We can think of the mind and something specific that the mind does, mental time travel, kind of like an MP3 player. And so, or even, you know, people listening right now can see it on their phone or wherever they're listening. There's the fast forward, there's the there's the rewind, and then there's the play button. So mental time travel in some sense is the mind that is in fast forward or rewind. So we can rewind the mind very easily to past experiences, to reflect on them, et cetera, or we fast forward to future events, planning, you know, uh, uh, thinking about future scenarios, et cetera, very powerful things. In fact, the fact that we can do that is what makes us uniquely human. We can displace ourselves in time. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we can do as human beings that's quite exceptional is we can, we can even, it's not just time travel, we can mind travel so that we can actually take the perspective from another person's mind. Yeah. Like, you know, I wonder what Hunter's thinking about what I'm saying right now. Like, I just took a journey into your mind and I'm looking back at myself. So both of those are examples of an attention that's not actually present in this moment, in this body. And this aspect of our human experience, mind, uh, mind wandering, happens about 50% of our waking moments. So that our attention is not actually in the present moment. And so this connects back to what we were talking about a moment ago with mindfulness, you know, the opposite of this wandering mind that isn't in the past or the future or somebody else's mind is a mindful one that is in the present moment and uh, actually having the button right on play so that you're there to experience the moment to moment unfolding of your life. And so that's the default, the default and, and actually the, the number 50%, it can be alarming, you know, like what 50%. And, yeah. <laughs> and if you think, if you think about the, I mean, just to kind of take you into the lab, initially, when I was reading these papers that they were using a methodology called experience sampling. So this actually was able to happen when cell phones were invented, essentially experience sampling studies are you recruit people into your study and you say, I'm going to ping you on your phone through a text message any time of day uh, during or night during normal waking hours. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. I'm going to ask you first, what are you doing right now? Like, what is the task at hand? And then the second question is, where's your attention? Mm. And there was a mismatch so that people said all kinds of things when they were experience sampled. Um, you know, I'm reading a book. I'm talking to a colleague. I'm in a work meeting. I'm making dinner. The second question of where's your attention right now, only half the time, were they actually attending to the thing they were doing? Amazing. So, but you it, know, but it plays out like in our own everyday life. And it makes sense. Like we, as I, you know, we had Lisa Feldman Barrett on, right. And she talked to us about how just the brain is primed for survival. Right. And so we're planning for the immediate future, right? Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of future, future surfing, right? I, I think maybe more than past. Um, actually, you know, it depends, right? It depends, uh -huh. but yes, we're definitely oriented toward the future and it's very powerful and productive to be able to plan for the future. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the 50% number may seem problematic. And my skepticism initially was like, well, you know, that's just people's regular lives. Like we're not always like, you know, going to do the most the focus thing when we're just living our lives. But what if we bring them into the laboratory and we say, you're going to do an intentionally demanding task now. We want you to pay attention. We tell them that's the intention. And then we give them an experiment and then we see how they did on it. And we stop the experiment every now and then we ask them, what are you doing right now? The task, where's your attention in the task or not? 
only 50% of the time in that experimental context wow. were they saying it. And then it was like other, other people have had the same kind of experience. They're like, what if we just motivate people, pay them, pay them to stay on task. And oh, in fact, intrinsic in, reward, we know well, in that. some <laughs> sense, you know, like think of like an air traffic controller. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. These are surgeon, like any, yeah. so many professions. Paying attention is just like the baseline of your job, right? Yeah. You better be paying attention. Even with monetary reward, 50%. So this is a built-in default of the mind. And that's what I wanted to emphasize. I really love the way that you phrase that. The worst news, though, is that it's a lot. 50% is a lot. The worst news is that under stress, stressful, threatening, and sort of depressogenic conditions, that number goes up. Mm. And so my interest as from the research perspective was for people that are experiencing contexts where stress, threat, and poor mood are going to be up-leveled, they're going to be in a jeopardy position. And for many types of professions, you know, medical and nursing, emergency services people, first responders, military personnel, um, the parents in certain moments of our lives, educators, I mean, the list goes on and on of people that are going to be in high demand, stressful circumstances. There's a vulnerability of your mind, yet you have to perform at your best. Mm -hmm. So again, mindfulness seemed like something that we could offer people that might protect against that? And that was the open question we were pursuing. Can it? Oh, I'm so excited to kind of hear the the results of, of this research. But you you also talk about, I mean, this, the amazing, 50% is just such a mind-boggling number, but also there's, it, there's mental health um, effects oh, yes. of this, right? Yeah. Like, can you, I, I'd love for you to, to just describe how this, how attention becomes a, a mental health um, problem, you know, where, where it can lead to depressive and, and anxious states. So tell me a little bit. Absolutely. About that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the third quite, we're going back to that experiment I was describing. The first question was, what are you doing right now? And the second question is, where's your attention? That was the mismatch of 50%. The third question was, what is your mood? And it was between sort of positive and negative, this kind of Likert, like a, a um, slider bar. And what was noticed was that when people reported mind wandering, meaning that they weren't on the task at hand, the next moment they tended to be more negative. So mm -hmm. the title of the paper, and this is from colleagues at Harvard, was a wandering mind is a, uh, sorry, uh, the, the title of the paper was that a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Hmm. And that is kind of profound, like what? Hmm. So is this just the human condition? I mean, there is a negativity bias in our minds, but it's quite troubling that there is this relationship, maybe, and, and, and from their point of view, the researcher's point of view, a causal relationship so that mind wandering leads to more negative experiences. Well, I and can so, see how that might happen. Like if you're feeling some stress, right. Or, you know, you're, you're, are, are we primed towards like looking for threat, right. Where, where our brains are tr primed towards looking for threat. So then you start, your mind might start to wander into the past or the future to figure out, you know, what is this threat? How can I handle this threat? And that can kind of go in a, a downward spiral. It probably has a lot to do with rumination, I imagine. Yeah. So definitely that's something that's the case, but just to clarify, they found this regardless of the content of the mind wandering. Mm, okay. So wow. it didn't matter if you were imagining a beautiful vacation you were about to take. So one of the things that we're thinking about right now is that it may be the cost of reentry, the self-knowledge mm. that I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing had a little twinge of negativity to it. 
Um, mm. So that's sort of one issue is that we mind wander a lot and maybe tied to that, we have more episodes of, of negativity. But I want to pick up on what you just said, which is such a great point. When we go back to that notion of mental time travel, you know, the productive aspects are that we rewind the mind to reflect on the past, learn from it, or as you said, fast forward to plan. But under high stress circumstances, demanding circumstances, we don't tend to do that productively. We're not rewinding and fast forwarding productively. When we rewind, especially if the period of demand is high, we're ruminating, we're reliving, we're regretting experiences that have happened. And when we're fast forwarding, we're catastrophizing and worrying. So there is a very, it's even considered something that's called like a transdiagnostic vulnerability, regardless of what mental health disorder you have, depression, anxiety, suicidality, PTSD, this notion of a mind that wanders is probably a big feature of that. So, you know, getting a hold of uh, an awareness that you're doing it and then potentially doing it less often is very powerful as a potential psychological resilience building tool. Um, But absolutely, it's the case that that has psych health consequences, like you mentioned. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's so fascinating uh, because it's just because it is our default, right? Like we weren't, we didn't evolve to be happy and content, right? We evolved to just pass on our genes. So that just whatever would get us to that point, you know, that's, that's what we're evolving to do. So uh, it's so interesting. And then you, you mentioned like, maybe it's just the cost of changing. That makes me think of the whole body budget, right? The metabolism budget that, that might be there. So we're, and that really explains like how in the research, you know, mindfulness shows to increase well-being, right? And feelings of well-being and, and less anxiety and less depression. If we're 
you know, it, it's so fascinating. I, I love this. So you have been, so then you took your research and you brought it to these really high stress professions like yeah. the Marines, which I love this because I've learned about some of this research and I teach some people, you know, sometimes in mindful parenting, like, okay, you know, there are active duty <laughs> service military people who are, who are there in a super high stress situation. Like we are like, like you are, you know, if you have like two, two and a half year old twins and you're, you know, whatever. And they're able to take this practice and it's able to have benefits and, and, you know, anybody can do it. So tell me about, tell me about this research. I'm, I'm really fascinated to hear about this. Yeah. Yeah. And it placed you back. Right. So I realized, okay, as a, as a mom of a a young kid, uh, feeling like I can't feel my teeth anymore and life feels very stressful, um, starting to practice really kind of embodied me and made me nothing about the external circumstances changed, but I felt more alive and present. And it definitely improved my ability to be a parent. I mean, that was the number one thing that I was like, I was there. I could see the micro expressions on my son's face. I could collaborate better with my spouse when there was things going on. Um, I was in some sense, even though the goal wasn't to be happier, I was Mm -hmm. because I could Actually, you know, this we don't talk about that often. A lot of times the costs of distractibility are missing those moments of joy. Yeah. You know, seeing the 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 giggles and the smiles and and the successes and the, the sense of pride that your children experience from their own actions. We miss that if we're distracted. So a lot of that happened to me. And I realized, you know, I know I'm not the only one that has uh, uh, stressful circumstances in her life. Now what are the consequences if I had an attentional lapse? Okay. My son doesn't have me fully there, but he's fine. He's healthy. He's safe. Uh, You know, maybe I'm not going to publish one extra paper, but nobody's going to have any consequences of that. But for certain professions, an attentional lapse could be deadly. It's consequential. And that really got me thinking, like, what are these groups? And the first uh, group we worked with were medical and nursing students or trainees, you know, they're training to be attending physicians, yet their attention is shot through the course of medical and nursing school. So that was one group. And then we moved on to, as you were mentioning, active duty military service members, Um, not just in like regular old day-to-day life, but as they're preparing for their next deployment. So again, to place this in time, our initial studies um, were happening right around the surge, right after 9-11, when there was a lot of multi-tour, uh, hap- multi-tour contacts happening. So, for example, the Marine unit that we initially partnered with, it was about their fourth or fifth on average tour, back wow. to back to back. Wow. And I think that the fact that they had gone back so many times and they were noticing in themselves, um, things are not, we're not, we're not resetting before we go. We are having a chronic depletion from the multi-tour context they were probably opened up to more unusual offerings. And so when we approached them about doing a mindfulness training study, they said, yes. And um, the first thing I said is, well, we want to test you and train you as you're preparing to go. Um, We're not going to wait. Like, let's start right now. They're like, we're about to start our pre-deployment training. And I said, great, let us evaluate how you're doing with regard to your attention and your mood. And then we'll offer the training and then we'll evaluate you again. And then you can get go to be deployed as you need to be. And so the first thing that was the, I think the very um, surprising learning, though I had predicted it, 
Can I, can I ask, yeah, did you, sure. I mean, I'm just kind of picturing like the Marines and the army and I'm picturing <laughs> you coming in this, like, you know, I mean, maybe it wasn't you or whatever, <laughs> but like, here we are, these researchers, we're going to give you this mindfulness thing. Did you get some eye rolls and some oh. like skepticism and oh, some yeah. like, okay, fine, whatever. Well, this. first of all, they were a little bit thrown off because it was me and my colleague and she happens to be a security studies professor, professor from Georgetown. Um, and so when we both walked into this uh, military base, the two Marine captains that met us, first of all, they were very confused. They for sure thought I was the mindfulness lady and I was, and that she was the, the neuroscientist. And I'm like, no, flip it. I'm the neuroscientist. She's the mindfulness instructor. So they were already like, they, they didn't know what to make of us. Um, and then 100% skepticism. <laughs> but they were also innovative leaders that cared about their, their Marines and and so the skepticism was paired with a hopefulness that something could happen, something beneficial could happen because what they were doing wasn't working and they still had to go back. So I think that, that as I said, we, in some sense, it was because things were so difficult that they opened up to this possibility. And I really credit them for having that open-mindedness to give it a try because, you know, and even as I met them, like <laughs> we're having these conversations, we're planning out the logistics and I'm thinking, how is this going to look? You know, a group of 30 guys that look like these two with their eyes closed, you know, breathing. I mean, how is that going to look? Um, they had the same thought. But what was amazing is that they agreed to it and they participated. And, you know, it was funny. At one point, I remember they had a block leave, which means that everybody got, you know, time off. And uh, one of the captains, uh, I remember, told me that uh, during that block leave, they actually took a group trip to, to Vegas, so they're in Vegas. They're going to have like a good time. But the first thing that happened in one of the groups is they said, okay, before we head out, um, I'm closing the curtains. We're sitting down. We're doing our, our uh, mindfulness practice. And I was like, really? And they just wanted to kind of reset into the mode of now enjoying themselves. But they did it collectively and kind of organically. Like, come on, guys, get this done. Get the workout done. And then we'll go have fun. So it was amazing to me that they opened to it and then they incorporated it into their culture and their, their demands in their life. Um, so I don't know. Does that. And yeah, 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 yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> I love that. And so what, what they, what I have so many questions about it. Like what were the results? And also like what, what particularly, you know, did they practice? How long did they practice? Yeah. Like in this, like they're very busy, high stress situation. Tell me a little more about the details. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll tell you is, is, you know, we, we set up the study, we said pre-deployment, we're going to test you uh, on attention tasks and psych health measures. And then we're going to give you the training. And we're going to do it again. But we also had a group in this study that did not get the training because as any kind of goal standard research methodology, it's a randomized controlled trial. So you get some people that get it and some people that don't. So when we looked at the data of the group that got nothing at all in this pre-deployment interval where they're preparing, they're getting ready to go do something hard. You know, it's intended to make them better so that they can go do the demanding thing. What we found was disconcerting, but, but, but predicted, which is everybody's attention was worse between time one and time two. Oh. So eight weeks apart, everybody gets worse. Their mood worse, their stress levels increased. And now they're going to go get be deployed. So that was a really eye-opening sort of moment. But the reason I had predicted it is because we had this knowledge that high stress, high demand will deplete attention. And even though it's a preparatory interval, 
it's high demand. You're preparing for difficult things. You're doing live fire drills. You're actually uh, doing combat scenarios where you're playing out different things that you might have to do. Yeah, and you're anticipating the whole time. And you're anticipating the whole time (laughs) I'm about to go. So that was uh, troubling, but expected, unfortunately. And then the hopeful thing was, well, what happens when we give them mindfulness? And what we found, which is actually um, the good news story, is that those who got the mindfulness training and practiced, and they had to practice about 12 minutes a day, that subset of people benefited. They stayed stable over time. They did not decline. And those who practiced a lot more than 12 minutes a day actually increased. Mm. So getting Mm. the mindfulness training helped, but it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't just sitting in on the class. They had to actually do the workout. And if they did that workout uh, with regularity, they benefited. And, you know, from that initial study, we've gone on to do a lot more studies and finding the same results. High demand, pre-deployment, people decline. But if they get mindfulness training, they're protected. And the more they practice, the more they benefit. I love that you call it a workout too, because that's such a, I, that's my favorite metaphor before it, because it's like, we know that we have to take care of our body, right? And we have to exercise our body. We don't have want to have tight, constricted muscles or we don't want to, we want to have ability and capability in our body, but we, we're not yet quite thinking about our, our minds that way, like to have this capability, um, and to be able to, in our minds, we have to have a workout. So you mentioned 12 minutes a day, but you also mentioned those that did more than that, um, had even more well-being, and that sort of jives with what I've understood. Come to understand is that it there it, it is like a dose-dependent activity, right? And that you get the more benefits you get, the the more you receive. But I've always kind of people have asked me, and I've always wondered, like, well, you know, is there a sort of a a minimum viable dose? Like, what yeah. is that minimum viable dose? Did you guys uh, come across that question in your research? Did you look into that? Well, that or- was what what this finding led us yeah. to is. I wasn't on a, on a quest to find that initially. I then became very interested. What is the minimum effective dose was the least amount that people can do and still benefit both in the formal training they get. So the amount of time they spend with the trainer, learning the practice exercises, and then in the daily practice that they have to do. And in that first study, we didn't ask them to do 12 minutes. We asked them to do 30 minutes every day. Wow. And very few people did 30 minutes every day. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And many did zero. Yeah, And what we found that 12 minute number was the average amount of time that the group that benefited how they, they did that amount. And so in this follow-up studies, we, we were pursuing that and we assigned them 12 minutes a day. We said, let's not even bother giving them 30 because nobody's doing that. Let's just say, follow this 12 minute guided practice and do it every day, seven days a week for an entire month. And this was with actually another group of high demand individuals at the entire university of Miami football team. So we went from Marines and soldiers to now football players. And once again, what we found was that, yeah, people were more willing to do 12 minutes than more. They did it, but they weren't doing it every day. And those that did 12 minutes a day, three to five days a week, they benefited. If you did less than that, you didn't benefit. So the prescription now we're triangulating on a prescription because, you know, the thing about humans is just because you tell them to do something doesn't mean they'll do it. It's not like you can give them a particular dose of a drug. Um, So you've got to kind of see what happens and then prescribe based on that. So the prescription right now in our work with high demand groups in a program called mindfulness based attention training um, is about 
um, 15 minutes a day, three to five times a week. So, you know, we we were still ranging from 12 to 15 minutes, three to five days a week. That consistently now we're finding is beneficial. And by the way, you know, we've moved past um, the high stress groups that are the service members and the athletes. And now we're looking at people like military spouses, teachers, um, professionals, you know, professional people that are working in the business context. And that same prescription helps them as well. All right. Great. I love that. And you build up to that, right? Like you can start with five minutes a day for a week and then the next week, maybe go for your, your 10 and then your 15 or, and, and well, I would up say to that. definitely ramp up. Yeah. Ramp up slowly. But then ramp once up. you get there, keep there. And if you want to go beyond that, even better. All right. All right. We've got, we've got a number. Oh my God. We've got a number. Thank you so much, Amishi. This is amazing. And I want to also, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you about, but just briefly, didn't that, in that study, didn't you also compare mindfulness to positivity training? Cause sometimes I think that we, you know, we think that we can just like, um, you know, we can just re we, you know, the mind is a storytelling machine. We can change the story we're telling ourselves. Then we are, we're going to feel better. Right. And, and so I would love to hear about how that compared to the, the positivity training. Right. So yes. And we've done, you know, this is, these are all kind of different studies, but it's part of the whole research program. So mm -hmm. um, absolutely right. We did another study in which we compared people who were soldiers, pre-deployment soldiers who received mindfulness training versus a well-matched. So the exact amount of time, another, a trainer who had this, their particular expertise, same amount of practice requirements, a positivity program. And that meant um, cultivating positive emotion. So and positive emotion and cultivation of that is a very beneficial thing. I mean, there's a whole field of positive psychology. And in fact, that's what motivated us to give it a try because I was very open. You know, mindfulness may be helpful, but other things may be as well. Let's add to the toolkit. But what we found was uh, disappointing, but very important to know. When people, so the control group again, we had another group, the third group, we had positivity, mindfulness, and a third group that got nothing at all. Um, and, and we'd seen this repeatedly. When we give nothing at all, attention is worse, mood is worse. And remember, I'm an attention researcher, so that was sort of the primary thing that I was looking at. But the group that got the mindfulness training, they were stable again. So that was good news. We've repeated ourselves. So now the question was, what about the positivity group? Was it even better than mindfulness? You know, what did it look like? Positivity was no different than no training at all. In fact, it was a little bit worse. Oh my goodness. And what, what exactly a brief summary of what they had to do. So they did this. things like, um, uh, really think about, you know, um, uh, memories that were positive to, uh, kind of, kind of bring about the notion of a positive affect. They were, uh, in some sense, sometimes asked to reframe, to look at the positive side of circumstances. Um, so it was really around kind of cultivating positive affect or positive mood in the kind of momentary sense. Now, why would that be? Why would doing positivity, if it's good for most people, most of the time, there's a whole field of positive psychology. Why was it so problematic here? And one of the reasons we think that is, is because cultivating positive emotion when the circumstances are not inherently positive takes a lot of attentional resources. In some sense, you're sort of building a castle in the sky, right? It's like, um, uh, you know, I'm exhausted. I'm about to go to a war zone. I didn't do so well on the drill today. What's good about today? It's like it takes, you're working against the notion of what's ex being That's experienced. A lot of effort. A lot of effort, and in particular, attentional effort and attentional resources to fuel the creation of, of positive emotion. And they were already depleted. 
because we knew that the control group got worse. So in some sense, they were, if you think of attention as a fuel, they were spending out this fuel when they had less available. Mm. And so what we saw was that it tanked, <laughs> it really depleted, it emptied that gas tank, attentional gas tank more readily. And so the, the kind of takeaway was you can have positive emotion and cultivating it is probably really good. Don't do it during high stress intervals. If your intention is to bolster your attention. But because practicing to become present is more like, I'm trying to understand it. It's more like a, and it's be, it's like a letting go of all the effort, right? You're basically, you're not striving, right? Non-striving. We're letting go of the effort. We're beca- just kind of open and looking, seeing what is here right in this moment. And that takes less effort than this cultivating something that's not really there right now? I don't know if it takes less effort, but the exercises in mindfulness are, are guiding you to orient to your experience in a way that isn't draining it okay. because actually you're training attention with mindfulness and you're taking an acceptant, accepting non-judgmental stance. So you're actually building the muscles of attention up, unlike the positivity, which is just using the resource that was already there. You weren't strengthening attention. You were just using what attentional capacity you already had. Oh, okay. Okay. Great. And the second part of that you mentioned, which is that you're not trying to create an alternate reality, which can even require more attention. You're in this accepting mode of being present to what is. So both of those together, we think is why mindfulness probably helped a lot more uh, for these uh, pre-deployment service members. It's so fascinating. And I think for, for you, dear listener, like there's so many takeaways for this that can apply to our regular life in that we have like very high stress situations that we want to be present for, that we don't want to be reactive, right? We want to be able to choose how we want to respond with our kids. And so we need to build this capacity for, to direct our attention where we want it. And you also talk about there's different systems of attention. And this really comes into play in mindfulness. And when I was first learning meditation for a long time, I was confused in some ways, because in the beginning, as we start a meditation practice, we start with our focus attention, right? We're focusing our attention. We're doing a lot of like concentration, right? I'm maybe trying to feel the feeling of the air coming in my nose. And I found that, um, I found that my focus, you know, my focus attention grew, but I, all, there were other forms where I was just open to all the different things that were here in the present moment. And I, and I love the way you describe these different modes of attention um, as the, you know, one is focus and, and this other is like a, a floodlight accepting attention. It's really interesting. I think of this, I had a, a moment in a meditation in a recent, recently where I had this um, I had the, I got sort of like a wonderful metaphor for myself for this feeling of attention. Whereas like the feeling of that open awareness, a, attention is like, like my attention was like an open cloud, right. That was kind of like around in this area. And then when it focused, it was like the cloud condensed and yeah, like condensed on a thing. And then it sort of opened up again in different moments, but you, there are, there's even another system of attention. So please tell us about this because I think this is so helpful to understand the different ways our mind works and our attention works as we're starting to cultivate more um, attentional muscle. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And you just described two of them very nicely. So, right. The notion of attention, even when I use that word, 
uh, typically people think I'm talking about focus and focus is certainly very, very important. And what do we really mean by focus is really the privileging of some content over other content. And we already talked about what you, what you pay attention to is your life in some sense. And what that really means from a brain science point of view is it recalibrates and emphasizes what it is that you're paying attention to more so than everything else. So, um, you know, the metaphor I like to use for this is, is like a flashlight. So if you're in a darkened room and you shine a flashlight, wherever it is that you're shining that flashlight, you're going to get privileged access to that information. It's going to be crisper, clearer, et cetera. And everything else is sort of darkened around it. The same thing with our attentional focus. Whatever it is that we focus on, we have crisper, clearer information because more brain resources are being devoted to that content. Everything it's like else around. The, um... Sorry. Yeah, it's like okay. that you've done, you've, I'm sure you've done this thing though, where they, there's the video where they say, count the number of passes the basketball yeah. players yeah. make. And someone with a gorilla suit, like walks That's through right. and no one ever sees it because your attention focuses on the passes. You know, it's kind of like what you, what you, you focus on grows. Like if you, if you buy if you buy a, a Tesla, all you see on the road are like, those. Teslas. If you like buy oh, look a, at that. A Toyota, you didn't realize how many Toyotas there were, right? Like that's right. just to remind people that that really does happen, that that focus, that the other things do go dark. Sometimes Absolutely. we don't I even think, realize that, I think. You don't realize that. And we see this at the at the brain level. The earliest visual input is amplified for the things you pay attention to. So we know this kind of from the brain science point of view as well. So that kind of focus, that flashlight metaphor, very, very useful. It's that narrowing, constraining, privileging based on content. But the second system is the one you already mentioned that what I call a floodlight. And, and in some sense, that's the exact opposite. That's broad, receptive. The only thing you're privileging, because any aspect of attention, there is a privileging going on. That's sort of the common theme. The privileging in the floodlight version of attention is not the content, it's the moment. So you're privileging right now here right now. So when do we use this kind of a system? Imagine you're driving down the road or you're walking down the street and you see a flashing yellow light, a caution sign, right? Or something that says, pay attention. That's a very different kind of attention than that flashlight. You're not narrow. You're not constraining content. In fact, you, you can't because you don't know what you should be paying attention to. You just know right here, right now, kind of keep a broad receptive stance. Something weird is probably happening. There's a weird traffic pattern or children may be leaving school or construction equipment, whatever it is. So we know that phenomenologically. Pay attention, broad, receptive, privilege right now. But kind of again, metaphor. yeah, at the neural level, very, very different. Uh, it's not privileging uh, some things over others. It's all the things that are currently being experienced. So we can privilege based on content or time. And the third way that we privilege information is based on our goals. And this is something called executive control. And that term executive, just like the executive of a company, the job of the executive system of the brain is to ensure that our goals and our behavior are aligned. So whatever our goal is, everything else should fall in line. And, and attention is guiding the holding on of those goals and course correcting when we're not doing the actions that support the goal. Um, or it's changing the goal when the circumstances say, you know, don't do that. Like we're in the middle of this conversation. If the fire alarm goes off, I'm going to change my goal of like, I'm going to yeah. leave my, my room. So the goals can change too, but really it's this, it's constant management. It's a managing system. And the metaphor I use for that is sort of like a juggler. You're kind of keeping all the balls in the air. And, you know, the executive's job in a company is not to do every individual task, but is to oversee, to make sure 
is what these is, is what this team is doing aligned with what the goal of the organization is same thing with the executive system in the brain ensure all the tasks are being done and that they're being managed appropriately and then course correct when they're not and then it ends up that mindfulness practices can tap into and train and and actually even strengthen those systems of attention so they they can it can train all three of them you're saying yeah yeah i've i have noticed that all three of them for sure i think yeah are, yeah and if you think improved. even just like exactly even if you think of the mindfulness of of breathing exercise right mm-hmm. so pay attention to the sensations of the breath like you said the coolness of air flashlights on the breath now notice when the mind wanders floodlight is checking out where attention is moment by moment And when you notice your mind has wandered, gently return it. That's executive control. So the focusing aspect, flashlight, noticing floodlight, redirecting back when you're off of the breath, executive control. And then that's almost the push-up we can think of, that we're repeating that aspect, Mm -hmm. focus, notice, redirect over and over again, which we are now finding strengthens all three systems in some way. It's amazing. I, I... I'm so excited about this, just understanding this more fully and the, you know, the research behind it and like helping to, to bring that research here through the podcast. It's so exciting. Amishi, I wish I could like sit and talk to you um, with like some margaritas in a bar and just like, sounds good to me. (laughs) Come to Miami. (laughs) I'm coming. Definitely. Um, I would love that. Um, It's so fascinating. Now you just to end with your own personal story, you, you know, you notice you weren't present for your son and it really, this personal and the professional really tied in very well together. You, um, how has this practice and this affected your own life? Can you see in your own experience, the, any benefits that have arisen from this whole? Yeah. Now that little three-year-old is a college student. He's almost 20 now. So, um, you know, I think it changed. Uh, then I had a daughter after, after my son around uh, when he was around four. Definitely. I mean, it definitely changed the nature of my parenting, my presence, my relationship with them, my, parent, my relationship with almost every person in my life, including my spouse. Um, and I lean on this practice, especially over the last few years of the pandemic. And frankly, what we're in right now in this moment too, so much uncertainty and ambiguity. Uh, And as we maneuver through to kind of hold ourselves in this way that is both caring and attentive, uh, the more we do that for ourselves, the more we'll be able to extend that to those we love and care for in our lives. So I really see mindfulness as refueling attention uh, in a very profound way. And, you know, you mentioned that the kinds of groups that we work with in my lab are these very kind of exceptional groups, you know, special forces and firefighters and Uh, athletes. But the reason I wrote my book is because I was like, you know what, at this point, we've learned so much from the lab that we can bring it so that all of us can benefit so that more people can benefit because the lessons are the same. When there's stress, we suffer, but mindfulness training can help us suffer less and maneuver through with more ease and grace. So, so true. Amishi, thank you. Thank you so much for taking all your your research and your learning to us in the world with peak mind. Um, it's it's so great. You should go get it, dear listener. And thank you for for coming, for sharing your voice, um, for speaking so beautifully about it from your personal experience, from your research. It it's definitely making profound ripple effects. And I'm I'm full of gratitude for you coming today and and for sharing in general. 
Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Wow, right? This is such profound information. I think it is so, so important for us to understand how our minds work and how our attention works. And, and it really, really does affect every single thing in our lives. I mean, wow, it really blows me away. So if this has blown you away too, please share this on Instagram. Take a screenshot of what you're listening. Share it in your stories and tag me in your story and share it with your friends. Please, please do take a minute to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the algorithm get it out to more people and get these awesome, awesome messages out to more people. It makes a big, big difference. Yeah. So if you haven't it would mean so much to me if you could rate and review the podcast. It means a lot. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This is part of the resolution series. I hope you listened to last week's episode about resolve to be playful with Dr. Lawrence Cohen. So, so powerful too. Got a lot of amazing guests for you this year that I am super excited about. So make sure you are subscribed and thank you. Thank you for listening. I can't wait for, to connect with you again next week. Thanks so much. I'm wishing you a beautiful week, my friend. Namaste. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.